Good morning, church. Let me greet those who are worshipping with us online as well. God's grace and peace be with all of you. A very blessed morning to one and all. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And we pray that you'll be so blessed this morning, even as we gather in the name of our Lord to worship Him, to pray, and to offer Him our undivided devotion. Even as we now come to God's Word, will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts to receive your word. O Lord, would you be glorified in the preaching of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have been blessed through our sermon series, even as we talk about the various issues that come out of 1 Corinthians. And today we will focus on chapter 7. And in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul addresses another issue that was raised to him by the Corinthian church. This time he talks about singleness and marriage. And it's interesting how Paul addresses this issue straight after he does so for the issue of sexual immorality in chapter 6. Because Paul was dealing with two extremes. One extreme is the view that sex is simply a bodily appetite that should be satisfied whenever you want. And hence the prevalence of sexual immorality at Paul's time. But Paul says in chapter 6, Your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Then there is the other extreme view that goes the entire opposite. Oh, deny your bodily and sexual needs. Focus on what is spiritual and therefore remain celibate. Hence the issue raised to Paul in chapter 7, in verse 1, is that it is not good to have sexual relations. Paul, what do you think about that? And so Paul mediates between these two extremes as he deals with the issue of marriage and singleness. To better understand chapter 7, he has what we call an ABA structure. Section A, marriage and singleness. Section B, remain as you are. And then back to section A again, marriage and singleness. And it would seem that section B is the key message for us. But today, my friends, let me share with you four Four discipleship lessons from chapter 7. I invite you to turn to this chapter, keep it open. You may refer to it as I read scripture along the way. The four discipleship lessons. Number one, honor each other in marriage faithfully. Two, treat divorce and remarriage seriously. Three, engage singleness purposefully. Lastly, be devoted to God single mindedly. First discipleship lesson how do we honor each other? We do so in marriage faithfully. So when Paul was asked the question, it is not good to have sexual relations, Paul actually responds by saying no. He says in view of the prevalent sexual immorality, the best defense against sexual immorality is for all those who are married to have sexual relations with their spouse. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields her body to her husband. Now, this would have gone down very well with the men in the church those days, especially in the ancient world where it was male-dominated. But my friends, the next line is a game-changer. He says to the men, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but use it to his wife. This means, men, don't have sex if your wife doesn't want it. Now, this would have been an absurd idea, right, to the Greek men in those days. 
because they certainly did not believe that women had authority over their bodies. But Paul is radical, and Paul is adamant. Marriage is not a one-sided relationship. Marriage is one where we mutually honour each other faithfully. And sexual relations only work when both parties submit to one another, preferring the other to themselves and looking to serve each other. So what does that mean? Practically, it means that sex in marriage should never be used as a reward for good behaviour or withheld as a threat or punishment. Both husband and wife must be sensitive to each other's needs and not insist on sex on demand. But neither should one spouse consistently try to get out of satisfying the other person's needs. That's why he says in verse 5, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent, which means mutual agreement where sex may be abstained for a time. My friends, catch the main point. The key principle that Paul is driving home is the need for mutuality in marriage, where spouses honour and submit to one another. Apart from sexual relations, he he covers the theme of mutuality in staying committed in marriage. Whether the spouse is believer or not, stay in the marriage. He talks about it in serving one another in verse 32 to 34. And here's the fundamental principle. You've got to catch the heart of what Paul is trying to say. He's saying that both husband and wife are partners. They're equal partners. Serving God and each other with respect and honour. They are bound to each other in a faithful covenant. Timothy Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, puts it right. It's a great book, by the way. Let me recommend that to you. Timothy Keller writes, In sharp contrast to our culture, The Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. Whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest and yet single most important function of being a husband and wife in marriage. My friends, may I say it's sometimes easier to live together than to live for each other. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible. This morning, I invite all of us who are married to ask ourselves, how is your marriage today? And when you ask this question, don't turn to your spouse. You say it's all your fault. How is your marriage? How are you doing in your marriage? And I don't just mean the sex part of it. Even though Paul mentions that in chapter 7, he raises the issue Because sex is just a symptom, if I may say, of deeper issues in your marriage. What are the deeper issues? Is there a deep inability to communicate effectively? I don't mean just communication, but communicating effectively with one another. Are there roots of bitterness in your marriage? Because of very poor conflict resolution, you don't resolve conflict well, and over time, unforgiveness has become the foundation of your marriage. Honestly, is there a lack of satisfaction because of emotional, intellectual, and spiritual distance? And today, if you have been avoiding these deeper issues, can I invite you not to run, not to hide anymore? When men first sinned in the Garden of Eden, guess what Adam and Eve did? They ran, they they hid from God. I pray that today you and I will come with a transparent heart and ask God for the grace and strength to lovingly help each other take the next step in your marriage. How can you take the next step 
Number one, don't just maintain your marriage. Grow your marriage. Sometimes we think, oh, after we've been married for a while, let's just keep things as they are. Maintain it. No, my friends. If you maintain it when temptation comes, your marriage may just fall apart. You need to consistently grow your marriage so that in the times of storms, in the times of adverse challenges, that's where your marriage will still remain strong. How do you grow your marriage? To grow your marriage, you need to have a vision of what a biblical marriage looks like and the next steps to take. And so in line with our directions of discipleship in our family, for the very first time, we are launching what we call a marriage charter. A marriage charter has been carefully put together, a document that expresses how marriage is that covenantal and mutual discipleship journey. Go and have a look. Scan the QR code, please. Go to the webpage. And with that, you will see principles of what a biblical marriage looks like with very practical application for you to follow. For the very first time, we have put together a sacred marriage health check. Based on our discipleship framework of CORDS, we look at how your marriage, how your marriage is really, and how your marriage can take the next step to grow. So my friends, can I encourage you, please go to our Family Life Ministry webpage. The next slide has got the links on it. It's an example of what the page looks like. And I want to invite you to speak to us. There are lots of other good instruments that we have as a church. For example, the prepare and enrich tool that we use to prepare marriages. We have our marriage enrichment weekend for you to come and, and grow your marriage. You know, my friends, there's a quote that says, the grass is greener on the other side. I beg to defer. The grass is greener where you water it. Grass is greener where you water it. Would you water your marriage? Would you grow your marriage by the help of the Holy Spirit? Number two, would you journey with each other in safe communities? I pray that as a church, we will grow to have authentic spaces where as married couples, we can share more deeply about the burdens and issues we face in our marriages. And we can encourage each other with stories of victory and also stories of perseverance. We're not looking for perfect marriages. We're just looking for stories to tell how we can persevere, even though the marriage is not perfect, even though we are wrestling with issues, but we are still persevering in the Lord. What are some of these safe communities? Couple mentors. And can I say, the newer you are as a married couple, please seek out a mentor, a couple mentor that will journey with you. And for some of you here, we have been married for a number of years. You can serve as a couple mentor. Our family life ministry is in need of family a couple mentors who are willing to journey with the newer couples. Now you say, Pastor Ray, my marriage ain't great. You don't have to have a perfect marriage. You just have to have a willing heart to help a young couple who just started out in marriage take the next few steps in their journey. I pray that through our small group friendships, there will be more spaces to talk about our marriage issues. I pray that we will have gender-based discipleship bands where men can be very open about the issues they face, likewise for women. It's important that we develop these safe communities to grow our marriages. Number three, and this is really important. My friends, take the next step. Deal with the troubling issues forthwith. Don't wait till it's too late. Don't wait till the issue is too deep-seated. Don't wait till your marriage is too broken, your relationship is too bitter, too distant. Seek advice quickly. There is no shame in that. Pursue marriage counseling early. And I pray so much that as a church, we will be the authentic space to help our marriages glorify God as we honour each other faithfully. Amen? Amen.
the second discipleship lesson. This is a serious one. We treat divorce and remarriage seriously. First Corinthians chapter 7 has two verses which are like mandates for divorce. Paul says, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a wife and a husband must not divorce his wife. And so, just by looking at that, it will appear that's a clear mandate, no divorce, no remarriage. But Paul in verse 15 actually says this, if an unbelieving spouse chooses to leave the marriage, then so be it. And this implies that divorce is accepted in cases of desertion, when one unbelieving spouse deserts the marriage. Now we also remember in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus himself permitted divorce when sexual immorality or what we would call adultery is committed by one spouse. So looking at the whole of the New Testament, it is clear that there are two exceptions. One, adultery as stated by Jesus and desertion as put forth by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. My friends, there are four main schools of thought for divorce and remarriage in a Christian circle today. Number one, divorce and remarriage absolutely not permitted. Number two, divorce permitted only in cases of adultery and desertion, but remarriage not at all permitted. Third school of thought, divorce and remarriage permitted in cases of adultery and desertion. And School of thought number four, divorce and remarriage permitted on other reasons. Question, will there be other situations when divorce is permitted? What about physical abuse? What about the insanity of one's spouse? Will these cases allow, therefore permit divorce? And one issue that arises again and again is whether adultery is the only prescribed exception given by our Lord Jesus so back to Matthew 19, and please bear with me for a while. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to test Jesus. And they asked Jesus, can adultery be allowed for any reason? Jesus said, no. What God has joined together, let nothing separate. Then they asked Jesus a question based on Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. Did Moses command divorce on the ground of adultery? And to that, Jesus said, yes. Divorce is permitted because of the hardness of heart. Then he then says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So question, was Jesus saying that this is the only biblical ground of divorce? Scholars offer different views. And one view I want to offer that to you for your consideration. One view is that Jesus was dealing with an interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1 in Matthew 19. It does not mean that adultery is the only biblical ground for divorce. Because in the Old Testament, we read from Exodus 21, verse 10 to 11, that there are other grounds where the wife may divorce the husband. Exodus 21 says, If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. So looking at Exodus 21, together with Matthew 19, it will appear that the neglect of food, clothing, and even sexual relations 
were grounds for divorce. And in fact, they were grounds for divorce in Jewish courts, in Greco-Roman courts at the time of Jesus. And in Matthew 19, Jesus did not deny these grounds. And it is fairly understood that he accepted what the Old Testament taught about divorce. After all, if he accepted Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, there's no reason why he would reject Exodus 21. What then is clear in my view is as follows. From the Old and the New Testament, the grounds for divorce are, number one, adultery in Deuteronomy 24.1, affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19. Number two, neglect in providing for physical and sexual needs in Exodus 21 verse 10 to 11. And abuse is a very serious form of neglect. And thirdly, desertion as stated in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. In fact, my friends, going back to tradition, and tradition always very helpful, the Protestant Reformation adopted these as the main grounds. And they can be summarized as three A's. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Of which neglect is a horrible form of abuse. These three circumstances can prove to be so damaging as to effectively destroy the covenant of marriage. The marriage can be so deeply eroded that it makes the marriage untenable to continue. And my friends, here's the point. Even, even if these grounds are present, we never command divorce. We never command divorce. In Matthew 19, Jesus reinterpreted Deuteronomy 24. Because at the prevailing view in those days was that Moses would command divorce moment, the moment there was an adultery. But Jesus says, no. Divorce is permitted because of the hardness of heart. Divorce is not commanded as an automatic option. Jesus took a serious view on divorce. And so did Paul in affirming the position of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 7. My friends, God's design is that marriage is sacred. And therefore, divorce is to be treated Seriously, we will never encourage divorce because God hates divorce. And God hates divorce because divorce at the core of it is a sign of brokenness. Brokenness of relationship, deep brokenness. Divorce causes such a brokenness of heart, soul and spirit that impacts children. It impacts generations and leaves deep-seated pain, hurt and grief. And because of that, hear me out, my friends, because of that, as a church, we will always press for forgiveness. We will press on for perseverance and even reconciliation, if at all possible. Divorce will never be the easy way out. And in Wesley, we have testimonies of couples who have faced betrayal in their marriage when one betrays the other, who had the option of divorce before them, and yet they chose forgiveness. They worked hard at restoring their marriages and they experienced the miracle of God's redemptive goodness, healing their brokenness. Is it easy? No, it's not. Is it painful? Extremely so. But yet they persevered. Now, I want to be really honest because there are many marriages who do not make it. There are many marriages amongst us who do not make it. And it is not for us to judge but to pray with compassion and to embrace all who are deeply hurt in the process, because that defines us as a church. While God may hate divorce, God does not hate the divorcee. He understands. 
but it feels like to be divorced. In Ezekiel, God is pictured as a reluctant divorcee. He's a God who experienced betrayal. He knows the pain. He's a God who has sought reconciliation, but yet rejected again and again. Today, you're experiencing the deep pain of divorce. God understands. And He loves you no less. He is your tower of refuge and strength. And today, if you are seeking and longing for justice, I invite you to be rested in God's sovereign goodness. There will be justice to those who have hurt others, but there will be vindication and comfort for those who have been hurt. And how we as a church deal with divorce is not asking academic questions or taking a judgmental position, but adopting a deeply pastoral and restorative posture. And as a community of faith, we need to offer that safe space and non-judgmental love for healing, restoration, and redemption. You know, I pray so much that we will be an authentic and a divorce-alert community. That means that we will be willing to save marriages. We are alert to divorce round the corner. We will help couples who are wrestling. We will not wait for divorce to happen. We are willing to be accountable and not wait for situations to be discovered too late. May that be the posture of us as a church family. And now I come to the issue of remarriage. Is remarriage permitted? This too we take seriously. There are those who take the view that remarriage is never an option. Then there is the view that it is an option only in the cases of adultery and desertion. I want to offer you one view. One view is that if divorce happened because of abuse, abandonment, and adultery, then one may say that the covenant is effectively broken no longer valid. And because the covenant is no longer valid, on that basis, remarriage may be permitted. Then there are those who take the view that remarriage is always allowed because of God's redemptive grace. He's a God of second chances. So what then is the answer, Pastor? Honestly, the decision to remarry is between you and God. However, it is to be made with all seriousness. I want to invite you to consider remarriage only, only after much prayer, only after much godly counsel. Speak to people who can speak truth into your life. Only if you realize you have been pretty much healed from the past hurts. Only if you have grasped the lessons learned from the previous marriage because there could be lessons that God is teaching you about yourself from your previous marriage. Only then, in the fear of God, and a desire to be his disciple that you prayerfully contemplate remarriage. May God help us all. This is a very difficult topic to talk about. I'm catching my breath. But I pray that we may catch God's heart as we take divorce and remarriage seriously. And with that, all that has talked about marriage, let's turn to singleness. The third discipleship lesson, engage singleness purposefully. Let me lighten the mood a little. Quite some years ago, before COVID came, I recall reading an article about businesses that were thriving during Chinese New Year. And so during Chinese New Year, you can actually rent a boyfriend and girlfriend. You can rent a fake boyfriend or a fake girlfriend to bring with you to your aunties and uncles' homes. This fake boyfriend and girlfriend, rented one, will just do one function. 
It will fend off all the queries from the uncles and aunties and grandmothers and grandfathers and uncles. When are you getting married? The single purpose of this pseudo-boyfriend and girlfriend is to ward off all expectations and really just to satisfy this notion that, hey, you've got someone and you're on the path to marriage. And that's the issue today. Today, there is a lot of focus on marriage where the nuclear family is normalized and being single is labored and marginalized. There are singles among us in different seasons. And the truth is that we as parents too, we all wish for our children to be married, right? We, we just naturally want and desire this. And sometimes we do what it takes to lay this expectation on our children. But Paul has much to say about singleness in chapter 7. Let me share that with you. First, Paul says, singleness is a gift. He says in verse 6 that not everyone has this gift of singleness, but he has. Now you must understand, the Greek word for gift is charisma. That's the same word for spiritual gifts that you read in chapter 12 to 14. And so my friends, spiritual gifts are not limited to gifts like prophecy, speaking in tongues, leadership. The fact that you are single is also a spiritual gift. The fact that in your season of singleness, it is also a spiritual gift to bless the body of Christ. You are gifted. As much as some people are gifted with gift of marriage, those who are single, you too have a gift. A beautiful gift. And it's the gift to engage in devotion to God. It is God's gift that allows you to be devoted to His calling without being weighed down by the concerns of marriage. And when Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth, he had in his mind the background in those ancient times, even though it was the Greco-Roman times and there was Roman peace, that war could break out any time. And when war broke out in those days, when you had a family with you, you had to take care of the affairs of the family. You know, we don't think about war right now in Singapore very often. But that's the burden and responsibility you have as a family. But Paul says if you are single, you are free to be devoted to what God has called you to build the church of God. And so today, let's embrace this biblical understanding of singleness. And I want to apologize to the singles. If we have a church has, we have marginalized you or unintentionally labeled you, I, I'm sorry. Because you are, you are such an important part of God's family. And I pray that today we will invite our singles to bless us. Invite them to be the godmothers and godfathers of your children. Build deep and meaningful friendships with them and allow the singleness that they offer to the table enrich us as a family. And if you are single today, I want to affirm to you that it's God's grace to you. But you may say, you know, Pastor Ray, actually I don't want to be single. I became single in very painful circumstances. My boyfriend left me. My girlfriend dumped me. I cannot find anyone. I've been going for dating apps. I still cannot find anyone. Or you may say I became single because I became a widow. Or I'm single because I'm a single mom now that my marriage has failed. How is that a gift, Pastor Ray? Friends, God does not intentionally create evil or brokenness. There is the sin and failure of men which has led to you being single. I acknowledge that. But do you trust that God can redeem it as a gift for you? I do. And perhaps Paul can teach us a lesson or two. It has been normally assumed that Paul was never married. But this would have been extremely unusual for a Jewish rabbi of 
Paul's standing. In fact, in Acts 26, he tells King Agrippa that he cast his vote, his right to vote, to put the early Christians to death. Now, that vote will have been cast in the Sanhedrin. And to be part of the Sanhedrin, it is likely, very likely, that you would have been married. It was an expectation of Jewish rabbis. The fact that he now has the gift of singleness can mean two things. Number one, his wife has died. Or two, his wife left him after he converted to be a Christian. And so when he says in verse 15, if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, let it be, he could have been speaking from his very own journey. So my friends, regardless of the circumstances that led to his singleness, Paul acknowledges that it is nonetheless a gift from God. And so it is for us. Singleness can be the divine opportunity to rediscover new purpose, new security, a new identity in not being married, but in being meaningfully single. Meaningfully single. Today, if you are single, would you say to God, God, I am single. By your grace, I want to choose to live my life in full purpose and surrender to your goodness. Finally, the last discipleship lesson. Whether you are married or whether you are single, be devoted to God single-mindedly. And that is section B of the ABA of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, remain where you are. Remain where you are. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation you are in, just as God has called you. And so Paul says, if you are circumcised, don't seek circumcision. If you are engaged, then don't seek to be released from the engagement. Paul says, if you are engaged and you need to move it to marriage because of lust, do it. Otherwise, it's okay not to marry if you made up your mind otherwise. Here's the point, my friends. Here's the point. Paul is not advocating a kind of a passive resignation, but he's highlighting priority. Priority. The priority today is not whether you are married or not. The priority is the single-minded devotion to God instead of being distracted by pursuing a change in status. That's what Paul is driving at. Stay where you are. Don't be distracted. If you are married, make the best use of this gift to stay devoted to God. If you are single, make the best use of this gift to stay devoted to God. Being married or single does not add anything to our standing before God. We are called to be responsible to God because marriage or singleness does not complete us. Only God can, and only God does. Our single-minded devotion to God compels us to hold lightly to our relationships, our possessions, our pleasures, and our bereavements. And our single-minded devotion to God compels us to grasp the urgency of Christ's return. Paul says, time is short. The world is passing away. Let our discipleship today be intentional. As I close... Since the National Day Rally, I have now declared a young senior. I tell people I'm a junior young senior because I just made it one year into the age range. And now we have the Majula package. So congrats to all who may receive it. Now before Majula package, we know it was the Medeca Generations package, right? Let me introduce another M for you, a very important package. And that's Maranatha. 
Maranatha is found in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Maranatha is Aramaic for our Lord is coming. So whatever generation you may be, young and old, may we be the Maranatha people of God, expecting the full package of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to be, the people of God, single-mindedly devoted to Him, whether married or single, awaiting His return and being utterly faithful to make disciples of all nations till He returns. Friends, marriage and singleness are real issues we face at Westley today. And so is divorce and remarriage. I pray that our marriages will always glorify God as we honour each other faithfully. I pray that we will treat divorce and remarriage seriously. Let us engage our singleness purposefully. Above all, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, single-mindedly. What's the Word of God saying to you today? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and do your work of convicting our hearts? Lord, we surrender our marriages to you. Be glorified in and through them. Lord, we pray your healing and comfort come upon all who suffer from the consequence of divorce. Let your wisdom be with those who are contemplating remarriage. Above all, let us all turn our eyes to you and be your Maranatha people, longing and ready for your return, faithful to your calling to be intentional disciples who will follow after you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.